right. Uh, we're going to start a new study tonight, the Epistle of First Peter. So if you wouldn't mind turning there. And as you do, let me just say this. I think it's you know, pretty well unanimous among evangelical scholars that Peter was the author of the epistles, the two epistles that bear his name. We all know Peter as the lovable fisherman who, along with his brother Andrew, became early followers of Jesus and eventually were chosen by the Lord to be two of his apostles, two of his closest men. Now, Peter was not the first pope, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but because he was what psychologists call an SNL, a strong natural leader, he did become the unofficial leader of the Twelve. His zeal for the Lord sometimes brought him praise from Jesus, as when he made the declaration of faith that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, to which Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. That was pretty good, okay? That was a pretty good one. But sometimes his zeal was misguided and brought him a stern rebuke from the Lord, because after he just got praised and he blew it, as we read right after that, Matthew 16, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. But then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? All right. Love Peter. Uh, I relate more to Peter than Paul, I'm sorry to say. Not that I rebuked the Lord, but I mean, you know, he, he just was kind of wild at times. And, uh, but he rebuked Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You don't want the Lord saying that to you. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. So, you know, he had moments when he really shined, and then moments when he didn't. Uh, Peter could be impetuous, even reckless at times. But listen. No one had a bigger heart than he did. Nobody loved the Lord more than Peter did. He started out as an immature believer who sometimes put his foot in his mouth, that's for sure. But guys, he ended up as a great man of God. History tells us it was Peter who said to the Roman soldiers who were about to crucify him that he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Will you please crucify me upside down? If there's anything we can learn from the life of Peter, it's that God looks past our faults, our failings, our weaknesses, straight at the heart. And when God has a person's heart, as he did with Peter, it's only a matter of time until he molds us into the person he wants us to be. Remember, God chooses us, guys, not on the basis of what we are at that moment, but on the basis of what he knows we will become by his power and through his grace. And even though Peter failed Jesus in a rather big way when he denied him three times, he was forgiven, restored, and went on to be one of the greatest apostles of Jesus. Look, failure in the Christian life doesn't mean we are forsaken by the Lord. It doesn't mean our ministry for the Lord is over. Peter thought it was the three days that Jesus was in the grave and Peter, after having denied him, went out and wept bitterly. And for those three days, I'm convinced Peter thought it's over. How can I ever face him again? How can I ever turn my life around after denying? I promised him I wouldn't do that. And I did it anyways. It's over. I can't face him. My ministry's done. But the first person that Jesus looked for after his resurrection was Peter to restore him. Remember that. When we blow it, and we can blow it rather severely at times, it's not over. You don't think Jesus knew every one of us in this room and all the times we were going to blow it? It doesn't surprise him when we blow it. It may surprise us because, you know, we think we'll never do that. And we do. But remember this. Jesus is all, all about restoration, forgiveness. He sought out Peter. Peter had repented. He was forgiven. He was restored. Look, when we blow it, if we repent, if we learn from our mistakes, they can be used by God to make us an even better minister for his glory. Sometimes God has to let us fall, like Peter 
who said, though these deny you, these other disciples, I will never deny you. How can God use somebody with that kind of pride and self-confidence? So he let Peter fall hard because he wanted to break Peter because he had big plans for Peter's life. And the same is true for all of us. Everyone in this room is a potential Peter. Everyone in this room is prone to failure. We love the Lord, but we can stick our foot in our mouth often, you know. But if you learn from your mistakes, you fall down, you get up, you repent, know this, it's not over. In fact, this could be the beginning of an even greater ministry for the Lord. Now, as I said earlier, Peter was not the first pope. He didn't found the church in Rome, nor did he serve as its first bishop. The Catholic Church was always trying to, and I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, so I can pick on the Catholic Church a little bit. Uh, but the Catholic Church was always trying to connect Peter, first pope, to Rome, and you know what? He didn't found the church in Rome. He didn't uh, serve as its first bishop. You know, Paul the Apostle had a policy not to build on another man's foundation, or in other words, not to minister where another apostle had established a church. In fact, to the very Romans we're talking about, he wrote in Romans 15, verse 20, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. If Peter had founded the church in Rome, Paul would have stayed far away from it. It's Peter's church. He's done it. He's laid the groundwork. I'm not going to build on his foundation. So who founded the church in Rome? Paul didn't found it. How, how was it founded? Who started it? Many people believe, if you read Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, right? Chapter 2, verse 10. How that on that particular feast, the time when the Spirit was poured out and the church was born, it mentions people from all over the known world who had come Jews, who had come to Jerusalem for this one of the three major feasts. This was in late spring, early summer, feast of Pentecost. And we read there were people from Rome there. And if there were people from Rome, which it says they were, uh, they would have heard the sound of the mighty rushing wind of the Spirit falling. They would have run to the places, we read in Acts 2, where uh, the wind was, was localized, the sound of the wind, I should say. And they would have seen the disciples with the cloven tongues of fire above their heads. They would have heard them praising God in all the dialects that were represented by all these pilgrims who had come from all over the known world. After that, they would have heard Peter give the first spirit-filled message of the church age. And we know that 3,000 God saved besides uh, women and children. And who knows how many of the Jews from Rome had gotten saved. And when they went back to Rome, took the gospel, and it's, they started a church there. That's probably what happened. It uh, seems probable that uh, Peter was never in Rome until he was arrested for preaching the gospel. Uh, and was uh, sent there to face trial and eventually his execution in Rome uh, by the government there. Uh, many believe that he arrived in Rome sometime in the year AD 62, about a year or so after Paul was released from Rome, you know, after his first imprisonment there. And so he left uh, about a year earlier. Peter comes about 62 AD. Many believe he wrote First and Second Peter in 63 and 64 AD, and was crucified sometime in 64, maybe early 65 A.D. Give you a little just working background of what happened to Peter and, and so on. Now in chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, starting with verse 1, we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me stop there. The word Peter is Petros in the Greek, and it means a stone, a stone. Well, that was the name Jesus gave to Peter. Uh, a name given to him by Jesus in place of his birth name, Simon, which means shifting sand. And I think, again, we can look to Peter as being an example to all of us who start off for the Lord as shifting sand, but hopefully wind up becoming a rock in our faith, right? Solid, uh, and so on. Uh, Cephas was another name for Peter, and uh, that was is the Aramaic word for stone. So, you know, Cephas... Uh, Peter, the words mean the same thing. He calls himself an apostle. The word, uh, the word apostle is a word that means one who has been sent forth with a commission. Uh, our English word ambassador is the closest word in our language to the Greek word apostolos, apostle. We go on to read how that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, wrote this epistle to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Pilgrims, guys, is a word that signifies someone who has settled temporarily, temporarily in a foreign land and is living alongside a people to which they do not belong. And of course, that's our testimony. As Christians, we're called pilgrims in the New Testament. Why? Because once we accept Christ, this is no longer our home. We're here because we're representing our king on foreign soil. That's what an ambassador did. They represented a king on foreign soil. Our king is not here. He's returned back to heaven. He will come again, we believe, someday soon. Until then, we are his ambassadors. All right, We are those that represent him on foreign soil, but we're pilgrims. Uh, this is not our home. We're just passing through, and uh, but we're trying to get people that don't we don't belong to to belong to us by sharing the gospel and so on he says these pilgrims were dispersed Uh, dispersion is a greek word that means scattered scattered peter is writing primarily to gentile christians we'll see that as we get go through this letter uh, primarily verse 18 of chapter 1 kind of gives us a hint uh, about that but peter is writing primarily to gentile christians who are scattered throughout asia minor Uh, That would be modern-day Turkey. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia uh, are all regions, or actually were regions, or provinces in Asia Asia Minor back in those days where the gospel had spread, churches had been planted. But listen, this epistle applies to all God's people scattered throughout the entire world. Peter had a target audience in mind. The Holy Spirit had a much broader audience, the whole body of Christ. Okay, sprout through the whole world again peter to the pilgrims of the dispersion verse 2 elect according to the foreknowledge of god the father the word elect can also be translated chosen which is how paul used it in ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 if you turn there ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 where paul said Just as he chose or elected us, which means for eternal life, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. On what basis did God choose or elect us for eternal life? Well, it wasn't on the basis of our internal goodness. We have none. And It certainly wasn't on the basis of our external good works. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Peter tells us that God elected us, listen, according to his foreknowledge. Guys, foreknowledge is a Greek word that means knowledge known in advance. Knowledge known in advance. Of course, God knows all things. God knows all things before they happen, including and especially things pertaining to redemption as we see clearly from the verse, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, which tells us that Jesus was the lamb, listen, slain, a lamb slain before the world was made. In other words, even before God made the world, made the universe, he knew who we were going to be. He knew we would blow it. And the plan of salvation in the mind of God was already in place. Because God knows all things. He already saw Jesus on Calvary's cross which would pay for our sins and redeem us back to God. So that was all in the mind of God. God, this um, open theism, where God doesn't know the future, many believe. And he has to kind of react, because, oh, i got to do this now. And he's kind of reacting to us. That is not biblical. God knew in advance everything we were going to do, all the sins we would ever commit, how mankind was going to blow it. And he already had... The plan of salvation in place. Jesus was already on the cross of Calvary in the mind of God even before the world was created. The Greek word for foreknowledge is prognosin. Prognosin. The word we get the word prognostication from, which means the action of foretelling or prophesying future events. Now, those who are Calvinists say that this Greek word actually means for ordination for ordination in other words god knows the future because he has foreordained the future he knows the future because he has predetermined the future including all those who would be saved 
You see, it wasn't that God just knew in advance foreknowledge, those who would get saved and those who wouldn't. Calvinists believe he predestined some to be saved and the others to be damned. Now, let me just stop there. I'll come back to that in a second. Let me just say this. A lot of Christians have a problem with the doctrine of predestination. However, it is taught in the Bible. It's a biblical doctrine. Therefore, we need to understand it and know what it's all about. Don't be afraid of it. Don't, you know, it, it's in the Word. It's a biblical doctrine. Therefore, we need to understand what it's about. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 4, we read, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, listen, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Let me stop there. Again, the whole idea of predestination troubles a lot of people, but much of it comes from not properly understanding what predestination means. The word predestination comes from a Greek word that means to predetermine or plan beforehand a person's destiny. To predetermine or plan beforehand a person's destiny. Okay, well, the strict definition isn't hard to understand. The problem comes when we try to figure out upon what basis. <laughs> upon what basis did God predetermine someone's destiny? Was it based solely on his sovereignty or our free will? Now, extreme or hyper-Calvinists believe that in eternity past, God chose some to be predestined to eternal life in heaven and the others he predestined to spend eternity in hell. It's known as the doctrine of reprobation, that God in eternity past, chose a whole bunch of people, the majority of people he would ever create, to spend eternity in hell without any chance of them ever being saved. The doctrine of reprobation. All of this was decided before any of us were born, and without any free will or choice on our part as to where we wanted to spend eternity. God just chose for us where we would spend eternity. He predetermined our destiny based purely on his sovereignty. In other words, we are nothing but puppets. And God is the ultimate puppet master. He makes us behave in certain ways and believe or not believe what he has determined. And we have no choice in the matter. We have no say about it. Calvinists have such a, an ex, and let me just say this, okay. We're talking about Calvinists tonight quite a bit. Um, you know, I've got people very close to me who are Calvinists. I'm not uh, saying that they're not uh, decent people, love the Lord. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I disagree with some of their basic theology. I can disagree with somebody and still love them. They're still family. I mean, you know, I mean, I have no anger in my heart toward them. I'm just saying that I disagree with some fundamental beliefs that they hold to, and I'm going to parade them out tonight because Peter touches on this. He just, right out of the gate. You know, you were chosen by the foreknowledge of God. Okay, well, here we go, all right? But look, Calvinists have such an excessive view of God's sovereignty that they don't believe that unbelievers even have the capacity to believe on their own. They believe that God has to give unbelievers the faith to believe if they're going to be saved. Turn to Ephesians 2. Now, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know these very well. Let me read them to you again where Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, those of us who are members of this church, we read that and we believe what is in view there is salvation. That we are, by grace, we have been saved through faith, and that it is a gift of God. That salvation is a eternal life is a flat out gift from god we don't earn it earn it at all okay calvinists interpret ephesians 2 8 9 to mean that not only does salvation come from god as a gift but listen so does the faith to believe itself come from god as a gift they reason that if we had free will and could choose to believe in jesus listen that would be a work they believe and we cannot be saved by our works. Now, I agree with that last part. 
God only saves us by his grace. And none of us can work for our salvation. We can't earn it in any way, right? It's a total gift of God. I agree with that. However, the problem I have is with the first part of that argument that places believing or the exercising of faith into the category of works, which it clearly is not. Turn to Romans chapter 4. See, again, Calvinists say you can't have a free will. People can't have a free will and receive Christ because if they had a free will and of their own free will they received Christ, that would be a work. And God doesn't save us by our works. Well, where do you get that faith as a work? In Romans chapter 4, I think Paul makes it pretty clear it isn't. Let's just pick it up in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So you see what he says there? For somebody who works for salvation, that's not grace, okay? There's no grace there. Um, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So guys, right here, Paul separates faith from works and doesn't include it in the category of works. He says there are two separate things. Either you're working for your salvation, but you're not going to get there working for it, because even Father Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But Paul says either you're going to work for your salvation, or you're going to receive it as a gift by faith. But they're mutually exclusive. So this idea that if I exercise faith, it's somehow a work is not biblical. Let's think about this for a moment, okay? How can simply receiving God's gift of salvation by our faith be considered a work? I mean, since when is receiving a gift a meritorious act? I've used this illustration before, so bear with me. Say that I am destitute, very poor, and also very sick. In fact, I'm so sick that I'm going to die if I don't get an operation soon. But I don't have any money for an operation. And then one day a wealthy man hears of my plight and hands me a check that is enough to cover everything. In a very real sense, he is offering me salvation from death by giving me a gift of life. Now, is my reaching out and receiving that check a meritorious act? I mean, will people applaud the one who receives the check or the one who gives it by his grace? See, I disagree with the Calvinists who believe that receiving God's gracious gift of eternal life is a meritorious act and therefore a work which would somehow negate God's grace. Now, at this point, Calvinists would argue that an unbeliever is incapable of exercising saving faith in the first place because they're dead. Maybe you've heard this. The argument goes something like this. They argue, the Bible says that unbelievers are dead in trespasses and sins. A corpse can't believe unless God resurrects it, so neither can unbelievers exercise faith unless God regenerates them and gives them the faith to believe in Christ. That's the argument. And again, much of this is based on Ephesians 2 verse 1, which says that before we got saved, we were dead in trespasses and sins. The Calvinists associate spiritual death with physical death. And since a physical corpse can't believe, well then neither can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins believe because they are a spiritual corpse. Now, when you hear that argument, at first it seems to make a lot of sense. It almost sounds like an airtight argument until you th start thinking about it a little bit. Then it begins to unravel. On the face of it, let me just say this. It is true that a corpse, physical corpse, cannot believe. But it's also true a physical corpse can't sin. And no Calvinist would deny that people who are dead in trespasses and sins cannot sin. In other words, if you're going to equate a physical corpse with a spiritual corpse, okay, physical corpse, no, can't you know, repent, can't believe, all right, unless it was somehow resurrected. Uh, you know, the same is true with those who are dead spiritually. They can't believe. They have to be resurrected before they can, and given the faith to, to believe, before they can be saved. So that's, that's the idea. Uh, and you know what? I say to them, well, yeah, okay, a corpse cannot believe, but a corpse also can't sin. And no Calvinist would say that a person dead in trespasses and sin cannot sin. 
They, they know unbelievers sin all the time. Likewise, give you a little flip side of the coin maybe, uh, likewise in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that as Christians, we are dead to sin. Remember that? Once you receive Christ, you're dead to sin. And yet, we can still sin if we choose to, can't we? Guys, spiritual death means separation from God, not annihilation. It means separation, not annihilation. What do I mean? We were made in the image of God. Remember Adam, Eve made in the image of God, right? In the garden. And when they sinned, well, it distorted greatly the image of God, but it didn't annihilate it. It didn't wipe it clean completely. It's like looking at your reflection in a very still pond, and then you see yourself clearly, your reflection, right? Your image. You drop a rock into the pond. Well, your image is still there. It's just distorted. Well, sin was a rock dropped in the pond of humanity, and it greatly distorted the image of God in us, but it didn't annihilate it. This is the Calvinist idea that, that because we, we are separated from God, the fall annihilated our free will. It annihilated uh, everything that God had placed in us that was his image, stamped on us. That isn't true. That is not true. If it were true that those who are dead in trespasses and sins cannot exercise faith, or come to God because they are the total slaves of their sin nature. This is what Calvinists believe, that because fallen man is in such bondage to his sin nature, uh, it, he's so depraved, uh, he, he would never on his own want to seek God. He, he will never on his own do anything that is God-like or godly, okay? But think about that for a second. If you're saying that fallen man... Uh, his relationship with God was annihilated to the point where he has no heart for God. He has, first of all, how come false religion seems to be in such demand today? Isn't that the heart of fallen man seeking to know God in some capacity? And Satan directs them down the wrong path? Not everybody in this world is a hedonist, is an atheist. There are many people who do love God you know, in some way, shape, or form, and many are pursuing him. This idea that, you know, those who are dead in trespasses and sins are so depraved, they're so uh, dead, that they would never seek God at all on their own, that they, they can never do anything that would be uh, God-like or godly, that, that doesn't make sense. I mean, unbelievers can show love to strangers, Right? Unbelievers can show kindness and mercy and unselfishness to others. Those are all attributes of God. They can even demonstrate self-sacrifice by laying down their lives for others, like on the battlefield or police officers or firefighters. These qualities don't come from their sinful fallen nature. They come from, from that part of them that still reflects the God in whose image they were created. Granted, the image is distorted. It's marred. But in some ways, it's still there. Because man, in some ways, still reflects the character of God. I'm not saying like Christians do. But I'm saying that some of the attributes of God are still in the heart of fallen man. And just as it's that part of them that can choose to do good, even when it goes against their fallen nature's desire to act evil and selfish, which is what the fallen nature always wants to do, it's that same part of their being that can choose to believe in Jesus if they want to. It's called free will. And it wasn't annihilated at the fall. Just as we who are Christians are dead to sin, but we can still choose to sin if we want to, well, so unbelievers who are dead in trespasses and sins can still believe in Jesus for salvation if they choose to. Look, guys, if that were untrue and God had to zap unbelievers. He had to drag them to salvation because they would never pursue him. They would never want to, uh, to, to know him on their own. And that's what Calvinism believes, that God drags people to salvation. Well, if that's true, then all the invitations by God in the Bible to come to him would be hypocrisy. Think about that, Okay. Because God isn't inviting people to come, if you believe in Calvinism, God isn't inviting people to come and be saved. An invitation, right, implies acceptance. Somebody invites you to something, you have to accept, right? Which implies free will. But if you're a Calvinist, 
Calvinism doesn't teach, there's plenty of invitations in the Bible, but technically, okay, the God of Calvinism isn't inviting people to come and be saved. Listen, he's dragging them irresistibly and forcing them to be saved. And yet the Bible contains many invitations for sinners to get right with God in both the Old and New Testaments. I'll just read you two, one from the Old, one from the New. There's so many where God said in Ezekiel chapter 18 to Israel, he said, turn Please turn from your sins and come to me is the idea. For why will you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. And he was talking there physically, but also eternally. God is saying, please turn from your sins. I'm a merciful God. I want to forgive you. Don't die in your sins. I don't want to send you to hell. I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. God is pleading. He's inviting. Of course, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, in the last chapter, chapter 22, verse 17, the Lord ends with a, uh, an invitation. He says, let him who thirsts come to me, Jesus is saying, and find eternal life. Whoever desires, let him come. Uh, let him come and take the water of life freely. These are invitations, okay? Invitations, which implies you have to accept them, which implies free will. Now, with regard to the doctrine of reprobation, listen, not all Calvinists hold to it. Moderate Calvinists teach that although God did elect and predestine some to salvation before the foundation of the world, simply on the basis of his divine sovereignty, they claim that that doesn't mean that he predestined others to hell. Yes, he predestined some to heaven, but that doesn't mean he predestined others to hell. Now, folks, this is trying to have it both ways. This is trying to have it both ways. If God commanded that to be saved, a person had to fly. But then he only gave wings to a small group called the elect so that they could fly. That's tantamount to condemning or reprobating everyone else to hell. Okay? Uh, without any hope of ever being saved. Now, at this point, the Calvinist says, well, no, wait a minute. God is not telling them not to fly. Man, they can still fly if they want to. I mean, so them going to hell is their own fault. Look, that is so disingenuous, it's hard to take it seriously, that argument. In that analogy, of course, the wings equals faith. We know the Bible says to be saved, you have to have faith in Christ. But the Calvinist says you, can't, you don't have faith in you. God has to give you faith to believe to be saved. So God is saying, look, to, to get to heaven, you have to have faith, but I'm only going to give faith to a small group called the elect. But the rest of you, moderate Calvinist says, I'm not telling you not to believe. Well, if you withhold from somebody the means of believing, that's just a soft way of saying you're reprobating them to hell. You're condemning them without any hope of being saved. And besides that, guys, if God can force the elect to be saved, right? Because irresistible grace, he's going to drag them into salvation, the elect, whether they like it or not, Calvinists say, well, they wouldn't. They wouldn't always like it. You know, okay, fine. But the idea is, you know, he's dragging them into, you know, irresistible grace, dragging them to salvation, right? The elect. If God can force the elect to be saved, then why not just force everyone to be saved? I mean, how can God, who is all love, right? All love, only save a few when he could save all? I mean, how does that even harmonize with his nature as a God who defines himself as love. 1 John 4, 8. Look, let me use this illustration. Imagine that you're um, walking past a pond on a hot summer day, and you see five young boys in that pond, and they're drowning. Now, you run over there, and you can save all five, but you only choose to save one of them. You can save all five. Wouldn't be hard, but you choose only to save one of these boys. You let the others drown. Do you think people will call you a hero or a heartless villain? Folks, I'm sorry to say this. I'm going to, really, I'm going to get phone calls and letters when this hits the radio. Calvinism turns God into a heartless villain. If he forces some to be saved, why not just force all to be saved? 
If you're a God of love, why would you let any go to hell? If you could force them all into heaven? The Calvinist responds, well, now wait a minute. God is under, I've heard this. Well, God's under no obligation to save anybody. That's not the point. Okay, that's not the point. Of course, God is under no obligation to do anything for any of us, including and especially to save any of us. No, that's not the issue. As if that, that answers the argument. You know, that, that God doesn't, he, he forces some to be saved. He could save them all, but he doesn't. Well, God's under no obligation to save anybody. Okay, we get that. We get that, all right? But that's not the point, all right? That's not the point. The point is this. If he chooses by force to save sinners at all, listen, then he must choose to save all sinners. Otherwise, he's not a God, of love. He's not a God of, that's all loving. Now, at this point, some would say, okay, then, Pastor, how do you define or explain predestination? All right, I'll give you what I believe, okay? Peter said that we were elected through the foreknowledge of God, okay? Now, let's just keep it simple. Foreknowledge is knowledge known in advance. I explain it this way, that God in eternity past looked down into the future, knowing all things looked down into the future through his foreknowledge, and he knew everyone who through his grace, don't miss that, through his grace, would respond in faith to his offer of salvation when the gospel was presented to them. Maybe not the first time, the second time, the fifth time, but eventually he knew this person would receive Christ, he would, they would receive the gospel. And therefore, based on that foreknowledge, he elected, he chose us to be his children and predetermined our destiny, that we would spend eternity with him in heaven. Guys, predestination only applies to heaven and to those who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You will find no connection in the New Testament when it talks about predestination. You will not find anywhere that we're taught that God predestines anyone to hell. It's always with regard to heaven and those who get saved. We have been predestined as sons and daughters to spend eternity with him by our faith because of what we believe in Christ. Nowhere in Scripture is predestination ever connected with God predestining anyone to hell. If they are condemned, if they go to hell, it's because of their refusal. Listen, because of their refusal to believe in and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, our Calvinists, brothers and sisters, would immediately jump all over that idea by saying that if God chose us based on us choosing Jesus, then that would make God a responder and not the initiator of salvation. And this, they say, would violate what Jesus himself clearly taught on the subject, John 6, 44. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And guys, I totally agree with that. God is the initiator of salvation. Nobody can come to Christ unless the Father initiates the process and draws them. Jesus is the good shepherd. Remember he said, I am the good shepherd who goes out looking for the lost sheep, right? Jesus is out looking for us. He initiates salvation by looking for us. We thought we were looking for God. We weren't looking for God until the Lord called us. We didn't hear it audibly, but our hearts heard it. And all of a sudden, one day, we got very interested in knowing God. We didn't know that it was Jesus, the good shepherd, who was looking for us, calling our name. We just know, oh, I feel like I need to get back to church. i got to read a Bible. Who's got a Bible? I can <laughs> that kind of thing, you know? All of a sudden, we were very interested in the things of God, and we accepted Christ eventually. But God initiated the whole process, Right? The difference, so, we, so understand, I am not saying God responds to us. God is the initiator. God has to draw people to Christ before they can ever believe. The difference between Calvinists and the rest of us is that the Calvinist claims that God only draws the elect to Christ. Whereas I believe, as Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, talking about the cross... I will draw what? All men and women to myself. John 12, 32. Now listen, 
This is important. Don't miss this. Just because God draws a person to Jesus, which is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the way, drawing people to Christ, that doesn't mean that they, listen, have to be saved. They can resist the grace of God. I don't believe in the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace. I don't believe that. They can resist the grace of God. This is what, and don't miss this, this is what Jesus meant when he said that many are called, few are chosen. What does that mean? If everybody who is called, everybody who has been chosen, the elect, if they all get saved because they have no choice, it's irresistible grace, what does that mean? Many are called, but few are chosen. You see, guys, I believe the Bible teaches that God, when Jesus hung on that cross, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. When Jesus died on that cross, at that moment, the Spirit of God, while well, he was poured out on the day of Pentecost, a couple months later, at that time, he went into all the world, the Spirit did, and began to call and to draw all men and women to Christ to be saved. Not just the elect, the whole world of unbelievers. But listen, his grace and mercy to be saved isn't forced on anyone. He's calling them, he's drawing them by his grace. But his grace and mercy to be saved isn't forced on anyone and can be resisted and rejected. Of course, again, Calvinists say it's irresistible grace. It can't be resisted. You can't resist the grace of God. Well, I beg to differ. Matthew 23, verse 37 Jesus told the Jewish leadership uh, there in Jerusalem, he said, How often I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings for protection, but you were not what? You were not willing. And so 38 years later, the judgment fell. Romans came, destroyed the city, killed a million six hundred thousand Jews, and so on. I didn't want that to happen. I wanted to draw you to me. You rejected me. You didn't receive me as your Messiah, your Savior. I wanted to draw you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks for protection. You were not willing. Don't tell me you can't resist the grace of God. Also, when Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin to give his defense in Acts 7, remember the culmination that got him in a lot of hot water and they wound up killing him for this final statement? He said, you stiff-necked and rebellious. You do always resist the Holy Spirit, even as your fathers did, so do you. You do always resist the Holy Spirit. It's not irresistible grace. God invites. The Holy Spirit woos. He draws. But we have to accept. Those who would receive the gospel when God was drawing them, of course, those that God knew would receive the gospel as the Holy Spirit was drawing them, well, he knew about them in eternity past, because he's God, he has foreknowledge, he knows all things. And as he saw that they would receive Christ when the gospel was presented to them, he chose them at that time to be his children and predestined them, predetermined their destiny to spend eternity with him in heaven. Jesus said this, turn to John chapter 3. It is God's desire that all people be saved. Paul said this. It's God's desire that all men and women be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his desire. Now, not all men and women will be saved. Why? Because God doesn't want them to be saved? Of course he does. Because they have a free will and they can choose not to receive Christ. Plain and simple. In John chapter 3, we see one of these examples, starting with verse 18. Jesus said, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. He, he who believes in Christ is not condemned, but he who does not believe, does, believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You see the free will there. Light has come into the world. Jesus is drawing all people to himself. God wants all men and women to be saved. And yet because people love their sin. They have a hard heart that wants to continue living in sin. 
Uh, they don't want to come to the light because their deeds are evil. Jesus said, therefore, they will be condemned. Not because he wants it, but because they refuse to come to him. One author had this to say about this. He said, and I quote, You see, the singular issue concerning predestination is neither intellectual nor theological. It's moral. It's moral. Through his foreknowledge, God sees the person who wants to continue to walk in darkness and doesn't choose him. So too, before the foundation of the world, he saw those who, like you, wanted to walk in light and chose them, end quote. But once again, guys, let's be crystal clear on this point. Just because God chose some for heaven, the Bible never teaches that he chose others for hell. Never teaches that. Hell is the place where everyone else goes who refuses to choose Jesus as their Lord and Savior. John 3.16, For God so loved the elect, God so loved the world. Now, of course, Calvinists said, well, that means the world of the elect. He could have said that. He could have said that. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whosoever, believes in him, Jesus, should not perish in hell, but have everlasting, whoever, everlasting life. It's not limited. Jesus said, all those who come to me, I will not turn any away. You know, nobody who comes to Christ for salvation, Jesus says, well, let me check the list. Uh, no, I don't see your name here. Sorry. You're not elect. You're not chosen. Of course, Calvinists would beat me to death because they'd say, well, you know, the, the non-elect would never want to be saved. I'm just making a point that, you know what? The Bible says that anyone... Anyone can come to Christ and be saved. And those who come to me, I will, I will not turn away any. Romans chapter 10. You might want to turn to this one. I love this. In these three verses, there are three promises that salvation is for anyone who wants to be saved. Romans 10, starting with verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever, I've got these underlined, whoever, believes on him, will not be put to shame. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For salvation is the idea. Verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay? I think that's pretty clear, isn't it? Someone else has put it this way. He said, and I quote, On the door of heaven, from our side... It says, whosoever will may enter. I am the door, Jesus said. By, by me, if any man will enter, they will be saved. Any man, that means you. You can come in and find pasture and find life by coming through Christ, right? Uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, right? So on this side of the door of heaven, it says, whosoever will may enter through Jesus. He's the door. When you get on the other side of the door someday in heaven, you're going to look back, and on the other side of that door, you will find written, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. I don't know how it works, guys, but the Bible teaches God is sovereign, and the Bible teaches man is free. God is sovereign in what he chooses to do, and man has a free will. And I, I've always believed this, okay? And, and, you know, I could be wrong. Again, just my way my mind works. I've always believed this, okay? How does God, in, how does free will and God's sovereignty harmonize? I'm sure this is maybe overly simplistic, but here's what I believe. God knows all things. God knows every heart. He knows how every person will respond when put in a certain situation. He doesn't force them to respond that way. He's not the puppet master pulling the strings. He just knows their heart. He knows what they're going to do in any given situation. And so he places them in strategic places, knowing that what they will do, allowing them to exercise their free will. So the final result is God's plan comes true, and man is, man's free will is not violated. Think of Judas. Judas was not a fall guy. Jesus picked Judas. You think Jesus didn't know Judas was going to betray him? He said, did I not all choose you and one is a devil? He knew that, talking to his disciples. 
God chose Judas because God knew that Judas, when placed in a situation, would betray Christ, which would allow the Romans or the Jews to arrest him, the Romans to crucify him, which was all in the plan of God. Was Judas the fall guy? Is Judas unfairly treated? Was he forced to do anything? No. Of his own free will, he did what he wanted, and it worked out to be exactly what God wanted, and God's overall plan was fulfilled. That's how I see free will and God's sovereignty. Why does God have to violate our free will? He's God. He knows exactly what we're going to do in a given situation and places us strategically in various situations to bring about his ultimate purposes. You know, that's a very big God, by the way. The God of Calvinism is a puppet master. He, 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 he's a robot master. He pushes buttons on robots and makes them do certain things. We've talked about this. I mean, you've been down to Disney World lately? They're doing some amazing things with animatronics down there. I mean, they've got, they've got automatons down there that look very lifelike, but they're robots. They're programmed to do certain things, to say certain things, and so on. It doesn't take God to program robots. We can do that. It takes a very powerful, very big God to take the free will of six billion people on planet Earth and weave them all into his ultimate plans, putting them in certain places where they exercise their free will exactly the way they wanted to. In the final analysis, God's plans come through exactly as he has determined. That's a big God. That's a very big God. So 1 Peter chapter 1. <laughs> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, we've got one and a half verses done tonight. I think that's a good start. Come on back, we'll pick it up. It's not my fault Peter right out of the gate said, you know, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. It's his fault, okay? Can't let that one lie, all right? Father, we thank you for... Well, Lord, we thank you that you are so awesome. As somebody has said, Lord, if you were small enough to, to understand, you wouldn't be big enough to worship. The one who said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts higher than your ways and your thoughts. Thank you, Lord. We're so thankful that you are so much greater than we are. Because, Lord, we can turn our lives over to you and know that you know exactly what you're doing. You're going to lead us in the right path. I don't have to worry about my life, where I'm supposed to go, what I'm supposed to do. If I just seek you, love you, submit to you, you will lead us in the right paths. And so, Lord, thank you that you have chosen us according to your foreknowledge. And we look forward to the day when we're going to be gathered to you and enter into our heavenly home. We're just pilgrims on the earth right now. But we have a home, a homeland in heaven. And we are waiting for the day when you tell us, come up here. The time has come for you to enter into the joy of your Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, until that time, give us grace to be faithfully about our Father's business and continue to bless these studies for your glory in First Peter. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.